Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of November, St. Evans is supporting Native Women Lead, an organization dedicated to revolutionizing systems and inspiring innovation by investing in Native women in business and leadership. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevans.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evans. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. 
slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Welcome to Close Wars, the podcast. Okay, get ready for some major news. The podcast that is moving to Austin, Texas in January 2022. Yeah, that's some major news, and I'll tell you more about that in a bit. I'm your host, Amanda, as always, and this is episode 106. Our special guest today is someone I consider to be the heart, the cheerleader of our community. Her name is Harmony, and in addition to being the person who gets us all together to talk about what's happening in our lives, whether it's Zoom, Instagram, Clubhouse, we're all so grateful for this. Like Harmony really pulls us together. But in addition to all of that, Harmony is the co-founder of Altair, an innovative women's footwear company focused on simplifying every ambitious woman's life. That's right, we're finally going to talk about shoes, and I am so excited about it because, as I've said before here, shoes are complicated, shoes are wasteful, shoes are rarely sustainable, shoes operate in the past, and most importantly, we wear so many shoes. Hopefully, this is just the beginning of many future episodes of Close Horse about shoes. It's been really hard for me to get guests to talk about shoes. Fortunately, Harmony is a friend and she's very knowledgeable and so excited about sustainability. So this is a great introduction to shoes. Harmony studied sustainability at Parsons and she worked primarily in trend forecasting prior to starting her own business in shoes. She currently leads Altair's marketing and advertising efforts in addition to navigating the company's continued commitment to sustainable processes. She and her business partner design, lead, and manage the production of Altair from start to finish. And let me tell you, well, Harmony is going to tell you today, shoes are complicated. They're expensive to make. The industry is old and stuck in its ways. And it's really, really hard to make shoes sustainably, especially if you're a small business like Altair. So I'm super excited for all of you to hear about her experiences as a small business owner in the world of shoes. But before we jump into all of that, 
let's talk for a moment about my move to Austin, Texas. For those of you who have been here since the beginning or close to the beginning of Clothes Horse, you know that I lost my job at the very beginning of the pandemic. And I really thought that my career in fashion was over. Actually, my career in fashion, I think, is over. Um, But just my career in general was over as well because I've kind of reached that point in my career where I'm senior level, there aren't a lot of jobs out there, you know, and in the eyes of some, I'm way too much of a rabble-rouser at this point. I'm probably too old because ageism is alive and well in what I do. And in general, I just wasn't sure if I could go work somewhere else again because my last few jobs have been really, really traumatic. And I'm just saying that out loud to all of you because I don't think we often enough acknowledge that our sh- our jobs can be traumatic We spend so much time at work, and when it's a toxic environment, it's bad for us. And I, I don't know. Is it is it capitalism that tells us that you know, if our job affects us negatively emotionally, we're the problem, not the job? I'm here to tell you that probably the problem is the job, like very probably. So anyway, so you know, I've been working on clothes horse. I've been seeing clients. I've been doing all kinds of activism for unemployed people Um, here in the United States, the unemployment insurance or compensation, depending on where you live, what it's called, uh, that system is totally broken. It's unfair. It's unaccessible. Lots of people didn't get paid for a really long time, yours truly included. And so I began working with a lot of different groups, you know, helping people out, uh, fighting for changes, you know, lobbying our elected officials, all the things I tell you to do about waste and the fashion industry. And one of the groups I worked with, it's called Unemployed Action. They asked me to become a media spokesperson. And I was a little nervous, but I figured, you know, I am a smooth talker, as you know. So I said yes. And in September, I I mean, I feel so lucky. I got to do an interview with Ben Castleman. He's an economics writer for the New York Times. And I'm a big fan of his work because if you know, if you know me, you know I'm an economics nerd. We had a delightful conversation. We actually were on the phone for a really long time just talking about supply chain issues and other things that I like to nerd out about. And, you know, when that article came out, uh, Surprise, surprise, trolls looked me up and harassed me, called me a welfare queen, told me to get a job, stop being a special snowflake, all all the greatest hits of trollery. And so, you know, picture it. I'm at a yard sale with Dustin. Well, it's a whole town yard sale. It's a town called Blue Ball. They were having Blue Ball days. I can't make this shit up, guys. This is a true story. And I got a push notification from LinkedIn on my phone. And first I thought, wow, I still have LinkedIn, that den of despair (laughs) installed on my phone. And the next thing I thought was, I'm not even going to respond to this because it's probably someone who wants to say something mean to me. But then the same woman found me on the Clothes Horse podcast Instagram and sent me another message. She seemed really nice. I looked her up. I said, fine, let's talk. And she told me that her father read my interview in the New York Times, sent it to her and said, you should talk to this woman. We need this woman for our business. And so that's what she was doing. And basically, you know, she and her father have a small family owned company of gift shops and they want someone to come in and 
lead them into a more sustainable, ethical future with more meaningful product and, you know, just all around a more meaningful brand. And they wanted me to come and do it. And I was like, well, do you guys know who I am? Because I am a raging rabble rouser on the internet. Uh, I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you want me. But they were like, no, please come to Austin and just like, you know, give us some advice. I went down there. I'm sure some of you remember me saying I was traveling. And, you know, they were like, would you like to come here and work full time? And I said, no, <laughs> uh, I'm just like still coping with a lot of trauma from my previous jobs and I'm just I'm just not ready um, but they wooed me long enough and after a lot of conversations with Justin and you know just realizing that this was an amazing opportunity I took the job I'm I'm so excited to have this opportunity to take all the things I talk about and think about and read about and put them into action to help a company do better to take the knowledge and experience that I have and actually put it into a better place. Like I really want to make this happen. I really want to believe that business can be better. And this isn't a massive corporation. There aren't that many employees. It feels like it could happen. I like the idea of trying to make a difference by working within the system, even though it's super scary it's going to take a lot of time and work and frustration. And I mean, it's going to be really hard. I'm not going to tell you where I'm working because I do deserve a certain level of privacy. But I promise I'll be bragging about any victories at some point. And if it doesn't work, I'll be telling you about that too. But God, it has to work because I just don't want to give up on this world, you know? Of course, Close Horse will be continuing on, actually. One of the things that finally swayed me to take this job is that they are so supportive of Close Horse, not from a financial perspective, but from a like, they want me to keep doing it and make sure that I have the time to do it and all of that. The first time I went to the office, everyone there had been listening to it and had so many questions. And I mean, that felt really good because I think, you know, for a company to listen to Close Horse and still want to hire me really speaks to their desire to do better. It's really exciting, right? Furthermore, Close Horse is one of the most important things I've ever done. It's changed my life. It's made me realize my purpose. All of you, getting to know all of you, that has changed my life in a way that I would never see it happening. And it's made me so happy and excited about life. My hope is that now that I have a steady income and now can do luxurious things like see doctors and dentists and finally get some new contact lenses, I can free up the emotional and intellectual bandwidth that has been consumed by worrying, like so much worrying for the past two years. And I can channel that into my work on Close Horse. So I actually think Close Horse is going to get even better. I'm so excited. I also get excited about the prospect of meeting new people to bring into the community, bring onto the pod, etc. So I feel like this is just the beginning of the next part of Close Horse's life. And I'm I'm really excited about it. And I hope all of you are too. And seriously, can I just say again how excited I am to finally Hopefully, in the new year, go get some new contact lenses. <laughs> okay. Anyway, my eyes, my eyes have been bothering me for sure. All right. Let's switch gears here for a minute. 
or well, several minutes. As you know, I believe that small business is the future or really more accurately, our future depends on small business. And you know what? Changes to the Instagram algorithm, supply chain shortages, a wacky economy, the pandemic, all of these things are making it harder than ever for all of the small business owners in our community. They're out there trying to do things the right way. They're trying to pave the way to a better world. And it's just really, really hard. I've been having so many conversations with different makers, different sellers in our community. You know some of them from the show. You know others from just seeing them around social media. And everybody is having such a hard time right now. Hard time on social media, hard time with sales, hard time feeling confident about the future, just coming up against obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And that that scares me because a world that is just Amazon, Walmart, a bunch of fast fashion brands, and Target is not a world that we want to live in. That's not a world that gets better because none of those brands have had to get better. What we need is massive disruption in the way we do business in this world, in the way things are made and sold. Obviously, we have to make changes on our end as consumers and as customers, but business as a whole needs to make a change, and that's going to come from small businesses. It's not going to come from Amazon one day waking up and saying, hmm, Maybe we've been doing it wrong. That's not going to happen. It's going to come from below, from these small businesses. The good news, despite all of the bad news out there, is that small businesses are on the rise. That's not even good news. That's great news. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, Americans filed paperwork to start 4.3 million businesses in 2020. That's a 24% increase from 2019 the before times, and it's the most applications in the last 15 years. Although, side note here, the U.S. Census Bureau has only been tracking these kinds of statistics for about 15 years, but still, this is a peak. Experts are anticipating that even more applications will be filed this year than last year. So we're seeing a huge surge in small business, which, ah, That makes me so excited. And I'm not the only one who's excited about this because economists love to see this too. There's been a 40-year decline in small businesses in the United States. This surge is really exciting, and it's very unexpected after a 40-year decline in U.S. entrepreneurship. In fact, in 1980, 12% of employers were new businesses, By 2018, that had fallen to 8%. So we're seeing huge growth here. One of the reasons, I mean, I I can tell you a ton of reasons that I think, but one reason that experts can agree on is that the tsunami of unemployment caused by the pandemic led to this increase in small business ownership. Researchers at the Kaufman Foundation were able to pretty much validate that by finding that 30% of new entrepreneurs last year in 2020 were unemployed when they started their business, which is double the rate of unemployed people starting businesses before the pandemic. That's one reason people are starting their own businesses. But also, you know, I mean, 
It's, it's in the air. How many articles have you read about the great resignation, about all of us changing our relationship with work and our priorities about quality of life? That's happening too. So many of us worked for big companies that frankly did not give a shit about us. We worked all the time. We had no work-life balance. Our job felt meaningless to us. We felt disposable on and on and on again. When you work in that environment, your own business is pretty appealing. Not that it's perfect, right? I saw a meme on Instagram earlier this week that was like, I worked nine to five and I realized it was ridiculous that I should have to work eight hours a day. So I started my own business and now I work 24 hours a day. And that sounds about right. <laughs> you know, It's a shift, right? But it can be more more meaningful and it feeling like you have a different, possibly bigger impact on the world by working for yourself. Regardless of the reasons these businesses are being started, small business does lead in innovation, job creation, and community engagement. It's so important that we protect and support them. The reality is, as much as I hate it, this is the truth, capitalism isn't going away anytime soon. Like, listen, I would love to hit the off switch It's like a really chill transition. We all wake up tomorrow and we're just bartering and sharing. And it's like a beautiful communal agrarian lifestyle. But that's that's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen in our lifetime. So what we can hope for and work towards is making capitalism purer, less corrupt, less greedy, and I don't know, more, more responsible for this planet and its people. That's the great thing about small business because small business can be more engaged in that, often is more engaged in that, and can make changes in the name of progress a lot more easily. We're all gonna need to buy things, whether it's food, clothing, home stuff, books, etc. Our money is so much more powerful and impactful when we shop small. So, Knowing that small business is so important, knowing that so many people are changing their lives and fighting to change this world by being their own bosses, I want to do everything I can to support small business around here, and I hope you're feeling the same way. For the rest of the year, I'll be producing episodes that feature various small businesses. Fortunately, we have so many incredible, intelligent, insightful, passionate super rad small business owners in our community. So hopefully there'll be even more episodes with these people coming in the new year as well. I also put a call out both here on the podcast and on Instagram asking for audio essays from small business owners in our community. And I'm so excited for you to hear these stories because the sneak preview I've been giving myself today, ah, so many awesome people who are working so hard to do things in a better way. Today's essay comes from Kristen, who's one of the founders of the Sex Ed Talk. Let's give it a listen. Hi, Amanda. This is Kristen Lilla, and I am a co-author of a book called Vaginas and Periods 101, a pop-up book. And my colleague Christian Hager and I created the book about three years ago, and We were unable to get funding because of how expensive making a pop-up book is. And so we decided to do crowdfunding and create our own small business. And so we are Sex Ed Talk LLC. 
And our main priority has been the the vagina pop-up book, but we really hope uh, and plan to have a penis pop-up book at some point as well. And it's definitely been a passion project um, as both, you know, a therapist and educator, but being involved in teaching sex education um, and being around youth, it's just so clear how many youth start to ask, like, am I normal? Why is this happening to me? Am I normal? And we were both just really passionate about being able to normalize anatomy and menstruation and puberty. And we really want young people to feel positive in their bodies. And it's been really cool over the last few years, selling the book and hearing all of the positive feedback, but also being able to educate parents as well. And there's so many people that have learned something. So I think that's what's been the most wonderful thing that has been having control over our own creative project and and having it inspire others to spark conversations and feeling good about themselves. Uh, favorite experience as a business owner is is definitely that and again normalizing conversations around puberty and sexuality and menstruation. There's been lots of difficult things as well but um, and this goes hand in hand. The difficult thing honestly is one of the things that we're also doing in the name of progress is that the book is only available on our website and it's not something that we have sold on Amazon. And that's been difficult because we all of our all of our foot traffic then is word of mouth, and that's been really hard. All of our ads have been denied because of the word vagina, but at the same time, um, and and we haven't been able to sell on Amazon because we quite literally can't afford to sell the book on Amazon. Um, it is just they take such a huge cut, and so. While we've been able to advertise less, it's also felt really good that we haven't had to work with Amazon because they're doing so many things um, against small businesses and that are not for our planet. So it definitely feels like progress not selling on Amazon. And while we didn't feel like we could afford to, at this point, it's not something we'd want to do. Um it feels so much better to just have our own control. And so, you know, all of the shipping happens in our living room. And it also feels good that we've been able to be more conscious about the packaging that we're using. And it feels really, really good to actually utilize the the U.S. post office and, you know, get to know our local post office um, folks that are that are working so hard to, you know, get our mail out and I love hearing about all the small businesses, you know, coming up over the holidays and appreciate all their work that you're doing. Thanks. Thank you so much to Kristen for taking the time to record an audio essay. You know, the first time you record yourself talking is so painful and Kristen nailed it. I barely edited it. So kudos to you, Kristen. And hopefully you're giving everybody else who listened to this the confidence, the motivation to send me their own audio essay. You can find Kristen on Instagram at Vagina Pop Up Book, and I'll share that in the show notes. I'm so proud of her and her partner for skipping Amazon. I I know that can be a very difficult decision from a financial perspective because by being available on Amazon as a brand, as a maker, you can reach practically an infinite number of customers who might never find you otherwise. 
Our community always seems so massive to me, but I realize that right now it's still just like a little tiny, tiny section of the world. But Amazon is massive in comparison, and so you can reach so many people. On the other hand, Amazon charges a Byzantine schedule of fees to its sellers. I've had some clients who have sold via Amazon, and it's been quite a mess to untangle. They charge from storage to handling to excess inventory to to fines for different packaging issues to keyword ad searches. And of course, they take a cut of your sales and just on and on and on. It gets really expensive and often really unprofitable for a small business really, really fast. Often the stuff you see being sold on Amazon is being made for the lowest cost possible in order to cover those fees and still make some money. And therefore, you know, the things you're getting probably aren't going to be that great. There are also, of course, the ethical implications of, you know, working with Amazon, not not the coolest thing you could do in 2021. It's hard. It's really hard, right? Being a small business owner in 2021 is full of really complex and sometimes overwhelming decisions and obstacles. And speaking of really difficult decisions as a small business owner, it's time to get into our conversation with Harmony. Some of you might recall that I began my career as a buyer in shoes. And, you know, I loved shoes before. I don't know if shoes have ever felt the same to me. The ridiculous amount of waste in the sampling process just makes me ill to think about. I've talked about that here before on the podcast, but I am haunted by the sheer volume of sample shoes, of perfectly good pairs of shoes with a hole punched in the sole, and therefore, of course, rendered completely unwearable. Those holes were punched just to avoid paying duties. The whole shoe is instant garbage, right? And then there was the pricing of the shoes. And, you know, I worked for a fast fashion brand. And I got to tell you, you would be shocked by how cheaply some of those shoes were made. $3, $4, $5. That's the landed price, meaning that paid for the transport, all of the duties. I mean, oh, you know what we say around here. It's cheap because someone didn't get paid. And shoes, that's happening a lot. Furthermore, shoes are made of a blend of plastic and toxic glues. Even if the shoes are leather, they're often not biodegradable and they're essentially non-recyclable without being completely disassembled, which guess what? Rarely happens. Yet the cultural trope for years has been women need a lot of shoes. We need shoes for this and shoes for that. This is the issue. That's the issue. You need a shoe that matches your purse. I don't think that happens anymore. That's more of like a 50s thing. But in general, women, shoes, synonymous in our culture. It's depressing. (laughs) Very depressing. So, yeah. I'm excited to introduce you to Harmony so you can hear about how hard she is working to make shoes better at Altair. Let's jump right in. Harmony, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? 
Yeah, hi everyone. My name is Harmony, last name Pilabello. Um, I am really interested in sustainability and ended up starting this company, Altair, with a good friend of mine from college. We make modular shoes. Um, and prior to that, I was doing trend research and kind of got into the trend forecasting scene of things, which I've learned I really love um, and <laughs> has been applicable to what we do with Altair. Um, and then outside of that, I'm just a normal human, you know, trying to do kind things for the environment. Um, I love surfing. Yeah. So I'm really excited because you're going to be our first guest ever here to talk about shoes, which is such a complicated industry. Uh, it's really hard to get into. It's really hard to do it sustainably. And we're going to break down all of the challenges there. But could you start by explaining what is a modular shoe? A modular shoe um, is something that I'm, I'm seeing more and more in the market. But at the time that we created it, what it was for us was a shoe that you could wear with different straps that you could change out. And the whole idea was that it was something that had a lot of versatility that could work as hard as you do and also prolong the life of the actual product. Um, so... I know there are other shoes that are out there. There's a few brands that work on different kinds of heels that you can do or that, that work on different like front portions of the shoe. But for ours, it's particularly the straps because we wanted the shoe to be as comfortable as possible that it could, in theory, be worn by itself and also just really change the, the style of it more so than the height or anything that would take too long to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But essentially... A modular design shoe is something where there is a component of it that could change the way that it looks for the person wearing it. That's so cool. You know, we just recorded an, ep an episode of The Department about Sex in the City. And I was like, one of the things that bugs me most about that show, which I have seen every episode many times, is that <laughs> there is no way that Carrie Bradshaw is walking around New York City regularly in a pair of Manolo Blahniks. Like, there's just... How? What? How much money is it's she giving to her podiatrist? <laughs> yeah, it's just not possible. It's just not possible. If she were, she would have like an ankle wrap on in every episode, <laughs> right? That's <laughs> true. <laughs> um, well, okay. Let's talk about starting your own shoe business, which uh, I am just assuming is really, really hard. What are the challenges of making shoes and doing it well and ethically and thoughtfully? There are so many challenges and full transparency, future me would not recommend starting a shoe company to younger <laughs> me. I can see that. I, 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 I think that's sound advice. Um, we went into this initially not, you know, we had these really amazing, pure dreams of what a sustainable shoe company would be. We had all these plans of, you know, disrupting the industry because those are those were hot topics at the time that we started this um and then you know once we started it there were a lot of obstacles or bumps on the road that we hadn't thought of before um so for example it's like meeting minimum orders and there were a lot of um third-party suppliers that weren't really willing to work with us because we didn't have an established reputation didn't have tons of money to promise that we would be able to order several, several um, rounds with them. And, 
yeah, that that was definitely one. So that was one thing. And then there, the other issue was because at the time we were still so young, we were in our mid twenties. A lot of these other factories that were more established, kind of the old guard of fashion and manufacturing, didn't really take us seriously. Not, partially because of our age and at times because of our gender. So that was an interesting obstacle for us. And then also because we had a new idea that wasn't the traditional way that you would make shoes, it kind of added this extra layer of doubt to other people wanting Mm -hmm. to work with us. So that was really interesting. And then on top of that, because we were both very interested in making it sustainable from the beginning, at the time, it wasn't like a hot a hot topic. It wasn't Mm -hmm. as trendy to talk about. And a lot of these factories and people we were working with weren't as interested in talking about certifications. They were suspicious of the questions we were asking, you know, (laughs) so at times they would just decide not to work with us because we asked too many questions and didn't have the money to make it worth their time. Um, yeah, so that was that was some of it. Oh, and then and then the biggest thing is that initially we wanted to make everything in the US and then we found out that wasn't even possible because there were no heel manufacturers that would work with us or that even existed anymore for small businesses. So interesting. I mean, I uh, do you know offhand like how many shoes are made here in the United States because it has to be just the tiniest percentage. I actually don't know the exact amount, but I do know that there's a lot of larger companies, um, more fast fashion focused, that have large sample factories they privately own in in the United States. And some of them are even, even in Long Island, New York. So um, I don't know. I know that in the 80s and 90s, there were tons of them. We have this amazing research and development person that helped us when we first started our shoe business. And he's now almost 90 years old. Oh, wow. Has been in the shoe. I know. So so ancient in the best way possible. He has been (laughs) in fashion since the 50s in New York um, and specifically footwear. So he was talking about the 80s and 90s and how Brooklyn just was full of factories and even upstate New York that were making shoes, all different kinds of shoes and all different kinds of components. And then slowly with, you know, globalization and outsourcing by the 2000s, there were like maybe less than 2% of factories left in just New York. So I'm sure that that rippled throughout the United States as well. Oh, I believe it. We were in another small town out here in Lancaster County this weekend, and we passed, I mean, very abandoned, a huge shoe factory that, I mean, it it definitely has been closed, I would say, probably since like the 80s or the 90s, but it was massive. And it was just so fascinating to think of shoes being made here in Pennsylvania, you know, (laughs) even though yeah, I, you know, like, shoes have been gone for a long time. It just, it just like blew my mind because I knew that there was a time where you could get shoes here because my guess is even with these sample factories here in the U S probably a lot of their components are coming from overseas because yeah, yeah, it's like impossible. I mean, I, man, I started my career in shoes and even if you're like, I work for a big company, we have tons of buying power and we don't care about ethics (laughs) or sustainability (laughs) or anything. It is still really hard to do anything new in shoes. There's so much resistance and it's so expensive and it's a lot of it's coming from overseas and just makes it even harder. So 
I guess it doesn't surprise no. me that there are no shoes here. <laughs> Something you said just reminded me. Uh, so, so there's this scene in Jumanji, the original one with Robin Williams, that I always think about at the beginning when young, I can't remember the main character's name, but, you know, he goes to the shoe factory that his dad owns because he's being bullied. And I think about that scene and how at the time it didn't seem out of place when the movie came out for <laughs> him to be at a shoe factory in New York. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> and the most exciting part of that scene was the idea of a person working there being super progressive and already working towards these futuristic sneakers right but the fact that it was a shoe factory was not weird in new in new york state right so <laughs> rip um okay so let's let's break down some of these challenges we already just talked about how it's really almost impossible to make shoes in the united states let's talk about sexism in the shoe industry <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. Honestly, this was a huge, unexpected obstacle in I our bet. journey, especially at the beginning. You know, because so a lot of these factories, they're, they're old school and it's often run, at least from my experience, by a much older generation. Everything d is done in a certain way that is expected by that generation. So it's not necessarily easy to find a factory on the internet. It's not searchable. It's oftentimes word of mouth for us, at least it was word of mouth. And um, the few that we found that were abroad, on one occasion, there was someone that actually refused to speak to us because we were women and he requested that a man come and speak on our behalf and it was just so absurd and stressful <laughs> and every conversation was us having to validify ourselves and talk about our credentials because every argument came down to him knowing better than we did about our oh. own product and it was so stressful and frustrating and then we went to another factory to try to develop this and it was a totally different experience of inappropriate messaging and you know it, it almost felt like they were trying to tinder trap us i don't even know if that's a real real <laughs> phrase but you know it's like hey i'm i'm so and so and i'm 35 years old and this is what i do and i'm still single what about you and you're like what does what? this have to do with the shoes? Yes, yeah. this was real. Uh, so gross. Inappropriate images being sent. <gasps> and yeah, having to having to block that and just stop working with them. Wow. Um, so it's it's been a huge issue for us. And then as soon as we found the factory in Brazil, which is managed by a woman, and then we met our brokers who are these two really amazing men that we work with and it was just such a respectful <laughs> genuine conversation I feel like just from the first few hours of having eye-to-eye -eye contact and transparency we're like done deal <laughs> like this is <laughs> you're treating us with respect and you're answering <laughs> all of our questions and you're not trying to hit on us great <laughs> what it's so much to ask for I know <laughs> I mean this isn't surprised me at all because when I was working in shoes as a buyer. I I cannot explain it, but even here in the United States, 
working with vendors and agents, it was just a totally different approach in terms of the way they would speak to me and my female coworkers. Like I just, like that was when a vendor asked me if I was just working until I got married. Why wasn't I married yet? Like what? Would you have asked me that if I was a man? You know, just no, and, definitely and, and, not. <laughs> and a general attitude of like, no, 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 we know what's best, not you. Yes, and I yes. hate that so much. We encountered that a lot, and and it, it kind of worked against us, right? Because we were young in our early twenties, we had a new idea, and it placed a lot of self doubt. And honestly, there was one point working with one of these factories where it was so negative for us and terrible. Like, so we had gotten to the point where one of these factories, the one that didn't want to talk to us because we were women, finally made some samples and they were so bad so bad to the point where we got like two left sides to one pair of shoes and they were wildly different sizes and they refused to admit they were wrong um and we had spent so much money just trying to get to that point that we thought we couldn't keep going forward it was just so um defeating for us and then having to learn to build back from that was really challenging so just a little tidbit there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that I, I have all the feelings here. I mean, I will just say like in general, even still working in fashion in all categories is still, it's really sexist. Like you, you don't mm-hmm. think it's going to be because a, a majority of the workers are women, whether it's the buyers, the designers, the planners, you know, the garment workers, the fit techs, the people working in the stores, all of it. It's a primarily female workforce, but the leadership is almost always male. And so there is this like, I don't know, they're very, they're very patronizing. It's very much, it's very patriarchal, right? Even though it's like this Mm -hmm. industry that is driven by women, both in terms of their labor and their money, and yet yeah. I would be I would sit at a table where I'd be the only woman and I was actually there to speak about my business and all the men just talked over me and wouldn't let me get an edge a word in edgewise. I was like, you guys don't even know anything. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you don't even know anything. <laughs> like why are you doing this? But I mean, you know, my first my first job where I worked for quite a while, we had open floor plan seating. It was a big company. So, you know, open floor plan means we just sit in rows out in a big open room. And then there were offices on one side of the building that were for the executives. And everyone sitting in the open sitting seating was female. And everybody in the offices was male. And it was just, I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem fair. Like, I actually have a better eye for clothing than that guy, (laughs) you know? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I just think, I don't think that that has changed. I mean, my hope is that it will as more and more women get the opportunity to be entrepreneurs and own businesses and, you know, take over the industry. But it's surprisingly male-dominated. It is shocking how male-dominated it is. And even when you go up to the very top and who's profiting the most, it's mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I could go on a whole separate diatribe about that. <laughs> but it's just these mixed feelings of feeling like profit is being made off of women. That's that's essentially what, what my, my feelings are about different oh. aspects of fashion specifically fast fashion so totally it's like 
it's being made on one end with the exploitation of female workers in the garment factories, the fabric mills, et cetera. And then it's being made on the other end with the customers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of retail workers are women as well. And they're not being paid a living wage or giving being given regular hours or benefits. And so the industry, especially fast fashion, really hurts women in so many ways that it upsets me when I see influencers who, you know, on one hand will be posting about like what a girl boss or a feminist they are. And then the next post is like, look at my new boohoo outfit or my Shein haul. Oh and my I'm like, gosh. It's so infuriating. <laughs> so infuriating. I'm like, please, please don't. Just stop. You're not allowed to use that <laughs> ever again. You are not a feminist. Uh, please just get out of here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I've been having this hard time lately of learning to be okay with where other people are at in their journey of feminism. <laughs> I did recently encounter someone that is working on becoming an influencer was all about women's right and gender equity. And then she was talking about how much she loved her new dress from Shane. And I was trying so hard not to cringe because she was talking about how cheap it was. And I think it was something like $30 for her dress. I'm like, this is literally not possible (laughs) without affecting other women who are making this for you. So yeah, yeah, it, it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. <laughs> I need you're right. I need to come to peace with where other women are in their journey with feminism. Because <laughs> I'll get upset and I'll be like, I got to put my phone away. I have to stop looking at my phone. I'm getting really upset, and I don't want to get in fights with people on social media. It's like a it's a waste of my time, you know. Anyway, okay. So sexism check. Let's talk about, this is like one that I think a lot of people are going to be surprised to hear, but is, is so, I mean, in, in any category of fashion, it's really challenging, but in shoes is particularly difficult, are the MOQs, also known as minimum order quantities. And this is like the minimal, um, minimum amount you have to buy in order to have something made. And in shoes, it is crazy. <laughs> Yeah, so that I honestly feel like is the worst and also another huge (laughs) obstacle for us when we were making shoes because there's so many different components, you know, so it all adds up. If you have to have, you know, 10,000 outsoles per style, per you know, size, then it just becomes this absurd amount of money, even if at the time it seems like, okay, it might be, I don't know, 50 cents for this rubber outsole, but mm-hmm. then you multiply it by 10,000 and that's outrageous for a small business. You can't do that. So, you know, there's, there's multiple challenges because then you, for us, like we would find someone that was willing to work with us, but it would be times 10, the cost that it would, if we could meet the minimum order. Um, so then it's almost like you find yourself wondering, well, do I need 10,000 pairs of outsoles and <laughs> can we pay for storage because it's almost the same price now? So yeah. there was, there was a lot of that back and forth and it just made it hard to move towards the direction that we wanted to. Um, specifically with, you know, vegan materials or really innovative materials that were, um, to their credit, also small businesses. So they had higher minimums in, at, mm-hmm. at times. Um, so yeah, just af- affording the materials, if they had smaller minimums was hard and then meeting the minimum was really hard, especially from a, an accumulative perspective. Um, 
something I was thinking about just now was the differences, right? So for us to meet the minimum orders on boxes, right? Like the final shoe box that the item goes into was a little bit easier because it doesn't have to come in different sizes. It could, it could last for multiple seasons, but then with things like leather, if you want to make one shoe that's seasonal and you, in our case, we try to only order as much as we know we can sell. Um, We don't over order. So the price is like times two if we want to order just one skin instead of 25 skins. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah, I could go on about it. It's just so horrible for small businesses it to is. meet these MOQs. <laughs> it is, it is. And I mean, and that, that happens in clothing as well. Or like, if you thought you wanted to start a sunglass company, don't bother because you have to order like 100,000 units of one style <sighs> because, you, you know, you have to pay for the plastic mold that was created to make it. And... Especially in shoes, though, this is like this kind of it squashes small business and new ideas. And it really allows these same shoe brands to just continue to dominate and kind of sell us the same stuff over and over again and not even really have to think about their practices because they're our only option. You know, they're the only company that has the buying power to buy all those those soles, you know, and the skins and the laces and the boxes and everything else. And so it's really hard to be a disruptor in the shoe area. It's true. And there's also, yeah, again, I guess it's hard to ex- explain for me right now, but because there are so many pieces that go into making a shoe, meeting the minimums for everything, including the actual factory that's producing it, is extremely difficult to navigate as a small business. And it's also (laughs) from a perspective of like just two of us, right? We don't have a team of people researching all these possibilities and, and, and then like, you know, in some cases we found a leather company that was willing to work with us, but they were in a different country. So then it didn't make sense because they, we'd have to pay for all the shipping and import taxes to go to, a, you know, go to Brazil. And so, yeah, it's, it's a giant nightmare. And then even with these larger companies that are doing cool, sustainable things, like they can access those materials and they can pay for it. And then it sets this standard for consumers mm-hmm. that are like, well, if you want to be a sustainable company, why aren't you using this particular material? Or why aren't you using this cool thing that this this large VC backed company has. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, like I, I can think of a company that you're referring to right now who has, (laughs) I believe I read had raised $500 million in the last few years. And it just blew my mind because it's so hard to raise money for a business, especially, I think also, I'm just thinking like when you're a woman, it's so hard. Yes. Like no one's going to give you $500 million right now, but these dudes are being given $500 million to make a few sneakers. It just blows my mind. I, it, and it upsets me also, but. It upsets me and it's oftentimes people who are not from fashion. <laughs> totally. 100%. It's like, Interesting because I guess they it's easier for them to get that money because they come more from like a business or marketing background. So people mm-hmm. feel like it's less risky. But don't you actually think it is more risky to give $500 million to somebody to run a fashion company who's never had <laughs> one before? I mean, I, I don't know. It just seems 
it seems really silly to me. And I actually, there's an amazing Fast Company article that I read this week about how a lot of these fashion companies have been getting like just crazy amounts of money or or going public, you know, like I'm trying to think of some of the companies that was like Allbirds and Rent Their Runways trying to go public or maybe already did. And uh, gosh, who else? There were just so many of these companies that either do like rental or, or like thread up or, you know, or making oh, yeah. like the stitch like, fix, stitch fix, Everlane, all of these companies who have oh, brought yeah. in a crazy amount of VC capital and none of them are delivering the profit that those investors expected. And so they're being pushed to go public now to, to, you know, have an IPO so that maybe those investors can get the return on their money. Cause it's just not happening as it is right now, because it turns out, Something that a lot of these people who started these companies and a lot of these investors, something they didn't think about was that these businesses are really expensive to start. You mm-hmm. know, shoes being an example because you have to buy, like, we're going to go over the components of a shoe. You have to buy a lot of stuff to make a shoe. And the profit isn't immediate there. Whereas if you look at someone like ThreadUp, they have to open these warehouses all over the place where they receive all these secondhand clothes and photograph them you know, individually. And I'm just, it's just expensive, right? It, it doesn't pay for itself in a profitable way, the way investors are expecting. And I kind of wonder what this means for the future of all these crazy, crazy investments. I, I, I wonder if they're going to continue coming in the fashion direction. I, I don't know. I hope that they do and that they start <laughs> leaning towards small, sustainable businesses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like maybe you don't have to make a billion dollars off of it, you know, for it yeah. to be a good business model. I mean, I, I, you know, I worked for a few different startups where we were trying to raise money and the expectation that like we go in and meet with a lot of these VC people is they wanted to hear us say, yeah, we're an e-com brand right now, but we're going to open 100 stores in five years and we're going to be bigger than the gap. And like, that's what they want to hear. But, you know, we would be presenting these plans like this is so unlikely. Like, why why would we have to be the size of the gap? Why would we have to have 100 stores? Like, this doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> um, I think it's just about like reframing what a good company is. No, I completely agree with you. And I, I actually had this <laughs> uncomfortable conversation with a friend of mine who it happens to also be a white male, not in fashion. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> cool. he was telling me like, oh, you know, you could just, you could easily get funding. You just have to write a, like a, a letter, like a page long proposal and just really inflate a lot of the things that you, you think oh you might do. You, know, you have to really sell this image to them. Um, and <sighs> then it turned out that it was coming from personal experience. <laughs> no way. <laughs> this person. Fight someone. this person had an idea no experience wrote a page proposal got a million dollars and i was so sick to my stomach and then never ever made it happen (laughs) what yeah yeah that was Uh, real story folks (laughs) yeah meanwhile like i one of the startups i've been working up with for like four or five years now is a zero waste grocery and it's almost entirely female team and like no one wants to give us money 
Uh, They're just like, I don't I know. I want to. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll shop there. <laughs> we're like, groceries seem risky. And I'm like, really? Because like, it seemed like it was the only industry that did well during the pandemic. Um, yeah, 100%. it's been really, really hard. And of course, we're always talking to men. We've had some really, even men in the like sustainably, sustainable food chain kind of space. And uh, they've been really mean to us. Well, that's the worst case scenario. Sometimes just really condescending. That's the best case scenario. And it's just been a really interesting journey because we're only asking, I mean, only this is like not an amount of money I have, but we're asking for $3 million. And that's in, not a lot for, that's not for a, a lot. business. Yeah. It's not a lot at all. And I like, it's, it's a business that's profitable within two years. So it's just, wow. it's just ridiculous. It's like, mm, I don't know. We're looking like one person was like, you know, we'd actually like, I don't know. Have you thought about getting into psychedelics? Because that's where we really want to put our money right Ugh. now. And I was like, that's a different business. Like, why are you saying <laughs> that to me? <laughs> it, that and, is so fascinating. I hadn't even, I mean, to, in my mind, every single person needs food and shops. So why wouldn't you invest in <sighs> And what you're doing, you know, I mean, it's more reliable than fashion in a lot of ways. Right? That's how I feel. I'm like, this is like, you can't lose with groceries. Everyone has to have them. It's, it's, it's non-negotiable. Yeah, we've, it's been really bizarre and very stressful journey to try to get money. And, you know, I think we're all like, just like, is, is it even possible now? I don't know. Cause we're so many years into it. Um, Anyway, enough business talk. Let's talk about, you made a list of the components of a shoe, and I swear it's like a scroll. It's so long. <laughs> uh, so I think I think this is really, I think this is going to be really interesting for the listeners because, you know, you probably look at your shoe and you're like, okay, I see it. It's got some like shoelaces maybe and like a sole and like there's the stuff inside. That's it, right? But well, go ahead. Just start telling us it because it's a really long list. <laughs> Okay. So, and honestly, I, I may have even left out one or two things, just full <laughs> transparency, because I was like trying to b go backwards from what we, what the final product is. But essentially first, first thing you need is a last and a last is the mold that you're going to base the shoe off of and wrap the shoe around. So you have to get a last and then you have to make a last for every single size and um, different style, right? So if I have mm -hmm. a boot, it has a completely different last from a sandal. So first you have the lasts, then there's other components like the heel mold. So if you have a high heel, every high heel has a, a usually a plastic heel mold inside of it if it's wrapped in leather. Sometimes it's wood, but these days it's mostly plastic. So we have that. We specifically seek out recycled plastic to use for our heel molds, which was actually not as difficult as I thought it would be in Brazil. But that's that's still that's a different supplier. Mm -hmm. Then we have the leather, which can come from all different kinds of places. We mostly work with this company, Coravale, this, um, that makes leather for us. And we just really like their transparency and their efforts for sustainability. There's also leather alternatives. Then we have the buckles and all the little metal pieces. So for our shoes, we have a special metal um, stud that goes at the bottom, which is what makes the straps interchangeable. 
So that is custom made for us and then also comes with the buckles. Then we have all of the internal metal pieces like screws, shanks for stilettos or anything that might need more rigidity. We have padding. So, you know, that's the stuff that makes your shoe really comfortable when you step into it and it's at the bottom. And then there's interfacing. So the interfacing has to go in various aspects of the shoe. Um, We'll put some at the toe. um, to help structure it and then it'll also be inside of the straps um, just various areas where we want to keep that shape and then we have the midsole so for us it's cork and we have the outsoles we have um, a, a rubber blend outsole and then we also have the hard paper packaging that we make for the shoe boxes, which comes from a different supplier than the person who makes the <laughs> tissue paper packaging. <laughs> and all of so, these places have a minimum order. So yes, they all have minimum orders. Yeah, it's like a lot of money, you know, like it adds up. It totally adds up and we're not even done yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm laughing because it hurts. <laughs> okay, so in addition to this, we have fabric shoe bags because we didn't want our shoe straps, like the straps that go onto the shoes to always come in paper packaging. So we were trying to limit that. And we had to get a fabric supplier that could make these fabric shoe bags for us. So there's that. Then there's also the person that does just metallics and metallic treatments. So they do the metallics for our bags, our boxes, and our leathers. And it's the thing that says Altair and makes it look luxury. And it's literally like we've done testing The metallics on our boxes is the difference between someone translating as, yes, I'm willing to pay for this shoe, aka experience of buying something online versus thinking maybe I'll only buy it on sale or maybe I'll buy something from a fast fashion brand instead. It's it's like the metallics that we need to sell the idea, right, of of paying Uh for this ethical shoe. So then um, there's the lift, which is like, the world's tiniest piece of hard plastic that you have to put onto the bottom of all the shoes. <laughs> right. It's the thing that wears out that people often can get replaced at a cobbler. And then we also have the treatments. So every now and then we'll do like a specialized strap or a shoe that has cut out flowers or maybe it has a really cool like printed pattern that looks like reptile but it's not actually reptile and then we also have anything that's pleated or studded um so that's a, those are different suppliers each and then we also have the actual factories so whenever we talk about things that we're doing at the factory this is the place where all those components are coming together and being built And that's just to make the shoe, right? So at this point, (laughs) you now have a finished pair of shoes in a box at a factory. Then after that, you have to coordinate with an international shipping company that Mm -hmm. will transport it to your fulfillment center. Previously, if you asked me a year ago, that would have been our studio because we shipped everything by ourselves. But now it's going to a fulfillment center in Florida. Okay. Which we found out you then have to pay for a separate courier <laughs> who charges you for every minutia just to open 
the shipment costs something, to break the shipment, to put it inside of a truck and bring it costs something. So that's that's a different person. And then the actual fulfillment center and then the actual shipping company like USPS or UPS that goes to the customer. So in total, this is not even counting any interaction that it has with me or my business partner. That's about def- 20 different 20 to 23 different suppliers that have to all be coordinated into getting one shoe to a customer. Wow. That was a long list. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like, this is like anything we buy, although I will say just shoes are a little bit more complicated, right? It's it, it, because there are so many different materials. Like when we talk about how few shoes are recycled, it's because you kind of have to reverse engineer everything that you just mm-hmm. said. Oh, I didn't even count the glues. Like you've got to get glue from somewhere oh, too. Oh yeah, and a lot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a lot of glue. <laughs> <laughs> and it is it's just like to recycle a shoe involves paying someone to, you know, ship it somewhere, right? And then paying another person or a lot of people to disassemble shoes, which it's interesting. Like you probably think it's really easy to destroy a pair of shoes, but like if you really really want to break down a pair of shoes so that all of the metal can be recycled, you know, plastic, whatever. It's really, really hard because there are a lot of like secret parts of shoes that you just aren't thinking about or like even taking out the eyelets and things like that. Like this is hard work and time consuming. I tried. I tried to take apart an entire shoe. Whoa. (laughs) It was really hard and I gave up and uh, I I ended up asking the factory to just send me all the different components not glued like separately. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's like really, really hard. And so like there are a couple services out there. I I can only think of one actually. I don't even know why I'm saying couple. I can think of one top of mind where you can send in your shoes and have them recycled, but like it's expensive and that can be, you know, people are like, why would I spend $100 to get my shoes recycled? Well, guess what? Like, it's $100 worth of work to disassemble mm-hmm. and recycle a shoe. It's it's crazy. And it's like one more reason that we shouldn't be buying tons of shoes, you know? But it's like there's been this, like, I don't know, it's like a trope of this century that's like women should have a lot of shoes, like, you need to be into having lots of shoes as a woman. It's a personality characteristic or something, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. And even looking at apartments, I feel like I've had realtors try to sell me on closet space. It's like, oh, so you could put all of your shoes here. Uh, and I'm like, well, you don't know I'm a shoe designer that has to have all the samples. No. That's just a judgment. <laughs> You're stereotyping me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, uh, every time we watch an episode of Married at First Sight, every season they have to go look at each other's apartments and decide who's going to move into whose apartment. And every woman's apartment has way too many shoes that they never wear. Because that's the other thing is like whether a pair of shoes costs you $10 or $1,000, they're all really hard to take apart and recycle if they're recyclable at all. So it's not even about like, I think, you know, Carrie Bradshaw spent her entire retirement fund basically on shoes, but like you could just also have a hundred pairs of $10 shoes and it's still just as, just as bad, you know, just irresponsible. We got to get out of the, like, you need a lot of shoes mindset because how many shoes do you really wear? That's why I love this modular idea, like getting a lot of wear out of one thing. 
that actually is a huge part of what inspired it for us was because we both lived at in New York at the time and Shopa had like a I think it was a 210 square foot studio that she shared with her husband. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So as you can imagine, they stayed with family during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we wanted shoes that took up as little space as possible and that didn't put more waste, essentially. Like we didn't want to make shoes that people were just buying and pumping out we wanted a reason for people to buy our shoes that I we wanted the reason to be so that you could have one shoe that is really well made and just keep buying straps to change with all the other Altair shoes that you have you know so for me I I have like one sandal literally one sandal of ours that I love that I have been wearing all summer with different straps and it's still in really good condition because we made it to last. So if I was not a shoe designer who owned her own shoe company and had to have all the samples in her closet, I would say that I only have one pair of slides, one sandal, and one high heel that I wear regularly all mm-hmm. year round with different Agreed. straps. And the four straps that I use the most can change between all three bases. What's so actually like 12 pairs of shoes. So yeah, I, I, sorry, that was a non sequitur. That was like a long tangent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it all points to this idea that like somehow, I mean, like, listen, there's a lot of different nonsense that like consumerism, fast fashion, capitalism, if you will, has sold us. And one of them is this really a major fallacy that we as women should have a lot of shoes like that's just a personality characteristic that we're supposed to have and anybody who has a lot of shoes I dare you to go in your closet and tell me when you've worn them the last time and I guarantee you've got two three four pairs that you wear regularly and that's it because no one needs 50 or 100 pairs of shoes like what are you going to do with them definitely not Right. (laughs) And I I wear clothing as creative expression, and I still don't wear that many different kinds of shoes. No, no. I mean, listen, I... It's got to be hard to be in the regular old shoe industry right now, like trying to get people to buy tons of shoes when they haven't left their house in two years. And like, I know for me, I've basically been wearing (laughs) house shoes for two years. But like, in general, I think this can be a great reset for us to think, we don't need a hundred pairs of shoes. We don't need 50. I don't know if we need 20. You know, I definitely don't think we need 20 unless right? you're, unless you're like a professional athlete in multiple categories. <laughs> That's the only time everyone. Okay. <laughs> hey everyone. I'm so excited to announce that one of my favorite brands, New Works, is an official sponsor of Clothes Horse. I've been a fan of New Works for a long time because they have unique prints created by some of my favorite artists. If you're looking for an article of clothing that you can proudly outfit repeat for years and years and still receive compliments from strangers everywhere you go... Newworks is the brand for you. Seriously, one of my all-time favorite Newworks purchases is the Dahlia mock neck dress in the ash and chest print Better Days. Everywhere I go, someone is blown away. I may have recently received a free breakfast taco from a barista 
just for telling them where I got my dress. I've also found that while all of the New Works prints are unique conversation starters, all of the pieces themselves are easy to mix and match into an almost infinite array of outfits. Dress them up, dress them down. The outfit repeating potential here is massive. The silhouettes are designed to make you feel good, happy, and just generally full of positive vibes. And Newworks offers sizes extra small through 5X with plans to continue to expand sizing. And oh yeah, they make adorable kids clothes too. Well, now that we've covered all of the aesthetic reasons I love Newworks, let's get into the serious stuff. In a world where it's progress, not perfection, Newworks is constantly striving to do better and better, always with an eye on progress when it comes to sustainability. All Newworks products are made by a small team in limited batches in California. You won't see any ridiculous waste over here. In fact, the company is constantly working to reduce their waste. As part of this commitment, Newworks has been offering packs of scraps for all of you crafty types to turn into your own cool, unique projects. And they even sold a few zero waste pieces recently, which was really so cool and something you just don't see out there as much as you should, right? On top of that, Newworks now offers Full Circle, a resale platform for Newworks products, because the idea is that these clothes should remain in circulation and be worn just as much as possible for as long as possible. Newworks is a woman-owned, women-run business. There are no venture capitalists or big investors involved, just a small team of incredibly nice people. And they're working hard to do the best they can for the planet and its people. Everyone involved in creating Newworks products are paid a living wage. And Newworks tries to source all of their materials in the USA and work only with incredibly nice people. Their hope is that every Newworks purchase will be a shining gem in your closet that you will cherish forever or hand down to someone you love. Once again, I'm just so proud and so honored to have this amazing brand as a sponsor of my work here at Clothes Horse. Go see why I love them so much at newworks.com or find them on Instagram at newworks. And that's new N-O-O. Okay, so speaking of all of these materials and components and stuff, something that you and I talked about as we were preparing for this episode is a topic that I'm always hesitant to bring up, even though I think it is really important that we speak about it because it is one of, in my opinion, the most successful greenwashing rebrands of all time. And that is, and I'm using this in quotes heavily, vegan leather. You had a lot of inf- interesting information about that because I know you've looked into it, right? For for Altair. Yeah, so we have wanted to have a vegan collection for so long but I have this personal beef with plastic in the fashion industry and all the different ways that it has been hidden into the things that we wear so (laughs) me too me too (laughs) it's the worst the worst and and with vegan leather it yeah it is greenwashing there's so many new vegan leathers coming out that claim to be made from different materials. And then when we do deeper dives, we find out that it's either just a very small percentage of this alternative, you know, like 
I'm trying to think of one that doesn't really exist here. So maybe it's like papyrus pulp and it'll be 5% papyrus pulp and the rest is like plastic, essentially mm-hmm. plastic, polyurethane mm-hmm. or PVC. But then they're marketing it as papyrus leather, like new vegan leather, super ethical and sustainable. And it has all these certifications that actually don't mean much in terms of what they're really doing to the environment long term mm-hmm. in my oh, personal totally. opinion totally so this has been part of the struggle right there's the meeting the minimum order and and then also finding a vegan leather that we feel good about that performs well every now and then we have found some that seemed like a really great idea but they actually didn't work well for shoes and for what we wanted something you know i i, I and i want to underscore this again something that Harmony called out here, which is that all, all, all of, almost all, let's, we'll say there's one leather substitute out there that is very promising, which is all of the mushroom leather, right? But you were the one who told mm-hmm. me that they actually have exclusive contracts, right? So we're not going to see mushroom leather at Forever 21 or Urban Outfitters or really anywhere for a while outside of luxury. And the other ones, whether it's pineapple or cactus or anything, I just want to underscore this again. Yes, they are elements of the material, but they are not the majority elements and they are not biodegradable. If you coat a piece of cactus in plastic, that cactus is no longer biodegradable. And I, I think this is just a really hard one because anytime I see anyone post about vegan leather on social media, whether it's me or someone else, everybody shows up to be like, okay, but you forgot about cactus leather. You forgot about pineapple leather. You forgot about apple leather. And I'm like, no, actually, I didn't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you have to go really deep. I was telling you this, like, when we were preparing, that, like, to find the truth about these materials, you have to go so deep into the research to find the truth. And that's intentional. It's true. And it's it's one of those things that I'm learning to peel my eyes open for, because as we've been digging and looking for cool materials, it's and sometimes you can't find that information online and they may not give it to you. If you just asked, you might have to actually put in a sample order. And then when you're ready to go into production, they might give you the information you're looking <laughs> yeah, for. Very true. Very, very <laughs> and true. Like, there's been some instances where we've had to stop production because we're like, Oh, this is totally not what we thought. Like we thought that this was going to be, like entirely (laughs) plant-based and it's not at all so you know rewind backtrack and then I did want to say that there I'm I found my current interest is in this company Milo that makes mushroom leather so we're we're trying to tap into them and find out a little bit more and there was another leather company that we found that was really really promising but yeah they had an exclusive contract with Mm -hmm. um Hermes. I don't know if I'm allowed to say their name, but yeah, they yeah, had you're allowed Hermes to say their name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, of course you find this really cool alternative and now you have completely barred anyone else from being uh, able to use it. I know. I know. It, it's such a bummer because, you know, like the, that mushroom leather company went on a huge publicity blitz when they signed that deal. And they didn't mention as loudly as they did everything else that it was exclusive. And so customers, you know, read this or see it pass by their eyes on social media or wherever. And they're like, oh, okay. So 
mushroom leather exists now, probably a lot of this vegan leather that's being sold to me is mushroom leather. So it's fine to keep buying it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. which like, listen, if you're a vegan and you are uncomfortable wearing secondhand leather, then buy, buy yourself some vegan leather shoes, but just like really care for them and make them last because unfortunately they don't last as long as real leather because, you know, they're plastic and the water gets in there. They're made of layers of materials. And if they, as they crack and degrade, moisture gets in there and breaks it down. So make it last. Like no one's telling you to not go out and buy vegan leather shoes if that's, that's where your values lie. But know that vegan leather is not, or, and I mean that in quotes, is not a license to go out and buy 100 pairs of shoes or pants or jackets or skirts or all these other things that, are being sold to us as this like sustainable option. You can't tell, but I have been nodding my head this entire time. <laughs> like, yes, yes, yes. It's just so <laughs> scammy. It's so scammy because, you know, you know that veganism you've read, right? Or you've seen it like veganism is, can be great for your own individual carbon footprint and have a great influence mm-hmm. on climate change. So you see vegan leather in writing and you're like, Oh, whether you realize it or not, your your brain is like, oh, okay, well, I should buy that. And like I could probably buy a lot of it and it wouldn't be bad for the planet. And that's that's not an accident. Because vegan leather is just as vegan as like a can of soda or your iPhone. But like my iPhone does isn't called a vegan phone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's always, it's always a big one when it comes up on social media for sure. And I'm sure you get people asking you why you're not doing more vegan leather. We do. And, and unfortunately it's a conversation I'm always really happy and open to have with people, especially because I'm a non meat eater, but it's, and sometimes it's received well and, and they're like, Oh, I had no idea. And then other times they're just like, you know, you're still, evil and the devil because you're using regular leather. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is one of those, like, you, you know, like there are a lot of ways in which we as individuals are not set up for success in terms of sustainability, right? And mm-hmm. nothing is more challenging and limiting than the materials we're offered in terms of leather type products in this world right now. Like it is just, it is a, there is no best choice. Unfortunately, that is the best choice for everyone. It's just got to be an individual decision because I mean, it's like, okay, you can buy this thing made of fossil fuels that is, you know, not going to last very long, but certainly will live on the planet for a long time. Or you can buy leather, which has all kinds of ethical considerations attached to it too so like what are you supposed to do right I mean you could wear canvas shoes but like this this gets really really hard and I think unfortunately on social media we find ourselves constantly wanting one clear decision that is right for everyone and this is one where it just is it's impossible right now yeah there's no there's no right decision I mean I totally get the vegan perspective as and it's just it's just not totally aligned with what I would feel good about making as a creator, mm-hmm. personally. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's such a hard conversation, and it's also really hard to answer on Instagram. <laughs> I know. And like, I'm like, you, know, you want to get on the characters. phone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like it's really complicated. Like it's the best thing I can do, and it's like it's just a personal choice. 
But I will never forget the first time I posted on Instagram, all I said is vegan leather is plastic. And it's it was something that had been on my mind for a really long time. All of my other peers in the industry, we had been really frustrated for a long time about the rebrand of pleather into vegan leather mm-hmm. because we know how cheap it is and we know that rebranding it allowed the entire industry to charge a lot more for it, but it was still the same crappy plastic that no one wanted before that rebrand. And we saw how it sold. And we felt, I was like, I feel like customers are being scammed like really hard by this, you know? And I just have to come out and tell people that it is plastic, you know? And that's, that's just simply saying that gets a really intense emotional response from so many people. I mean, I would say you should be angry, not at me, but at the industry for not doing better, you know? Like yeah, saying, I completely sorry. agree. Right, right? Like saying, like, sorry, it's just been really easy and profitable for us to keep selling you plastic rather than finding Ugh, The better. worst. <laughs> I know, I know. The worst. The worst, uh. the worst. It's like, be mad at that because that... Yeah, that, you know, people knew for a long time there was that plastic wasn't really biodegradable, that it wasn't really recyclable, but it was just so cheap. It's still so cheap, you know? Be mad about that. I always, I feel like the scam of plastic, we're still in the early days of uncovering it all, and it already looks worse to me, like exponentially worse than all of the cigarette stuff. You oh, know? Yeah. It's shocking how it's really like leaked into the system in a way where you, you, it's hard to go plastic, entirely plastic free. It's really hard. And then especially with fashion, it's like every, every time I try to rationalize why fossil fuels have become so integrated into our clothing, I can't other than greed and making more money and kind of watering down what would have been great as a hundred percent cotton or a hundred percent anything, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not that really, cotton's totally great either, but it's interesting because I, the other day I was like, I just kind of want to see, you know, something we talk about is like how right now is the golden era of polyester, even though we think of it as the seventies, that that was the golden era. Actually, like there's exponentially more polyester being made now than in the 70s and I was like you know I want to see I want to see how expensive the clothes the company the brand has to be before polyester falls out and I just couldn't get there I was looking at so many different brands yes we expect you know our $40 dress to be synthetic at this point but do we expect our $500 dress to be synthetic probably not do we expect our Mm -hmm. $1,000 dress to be synthetic of course not and you know what Everybody is doing it now. I'm horrified hearing you say this because I did recently have a shopping experience where I was trying to look for a sustainable brand to buy. What was it? What was I looking for? I think I was just looking for a new blouse because I I did this Kanmari method and it it didn't work out for me. It turned out I only (laughs) like extremely colorful things that don't match each other. (laughs) (laughs) I understand this This is my life too. (laughs) So I had to go back to basics, you know, Um, but then it was just shocking. Even looking on things like the real real, you're like, oh, this blouse was initially $800. And then you find out that it's a poly blend. You're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Why is it a poly blend? 
Right. It's crazy. I was like, I was on the real real too. And I was like, I can't believe this. Like, I'm shocked, you know, that everything when I read the fine print was a poly blend or poly. And like, that's, that's just how insidious it has become, you know, that everybody is doing it. Um, and there are like a multitude of reasons. I mean, it's cheap is the main reason, but there are other mm-hmm. reasons too. And it's just, we have to put our foot down as consumers. We have to. Um, okay. Well, let's, speaking of polyester, the insidiousness of plastic in the industry, <laughs> what are you doing to be, to make Altair more sustainable, knowing that it is really, really hard? So there is a lot of different things that we're, we're doing right now. And we've been focusing on different aspects, right? Because when we first started, we wanted to do it all at one time. And then it was initially, it was really just debilitating us from even getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. So we started knowing that we would have to do things in phases and different aspects like you know, easy choices, recycled plastic heels. They told us they could only do it if the heels were a certain width. So that means that stilettos can't be made out of recycled plastic. Mm. It's not structurally sound enough. No, that makes sense to me because I know that I've learned so much about plastic in the past couple of years that uh, (laughs) the fibers are damaged when they're recycled. That's one of the reasons like a lot of plastic just isn't recycled because it's not useful to the same extent it was in its first incarnation, but I hadn't thought about it for shoes. That makes perfect sense. It would totally break. Oh yeah. So they, they told us like, we just can't, it would not be safe. We don't recommend it. Don't make stilettos. So we didn't for a really long time. Now we have one, but it's just an exposed metal piece. There is no plastic on the heel. Um, And we just design everything knowing that. So even our lasts, um, the molds that no one sees except for us are made out of recycled plastic because it doesn't really matter at that point. Um, Mm. So, so that's the thing. And then also trying to remove it from every other aspect and our paper use as well. So our, our samples used to come to us in individual plastic bags. We're like, this is so unnecessary. Like (laughs) you just, send it in a box like we don't even care if it's individually wrapped we know what everything is so working towards that and removing all of the single-use plastic on that end and that was that was like a huge focus right so now I feel like we're finally at a point where we have managed to take out about 90 percent of our single-use plastic and opt for recycled plastic wherever possible um, and then from there, it's become, we, we had a lot of focus on ethics and how the people were being treated from the very beginning. So making sure that our code of ethics was being communicated and, and adhered to in an honest way at our factory and with our third party suppliers, um, making sure that there's, you know, no child labor or asking questions like, um, how much time off are, are women and men allowed to take for maternity and paternity leave? So those those were all the things we looked at at first. That's awesome. And then now it's it was really exciting at the time, but it also felt like an upward battle, honestly, because oh, there's sure. so many things just never ending. Um, <laughs> and it almost felt 
hard because I do think the materials are the things that we're, we've been starting to look at more recently, but the, they're also the more forward facing side that's easier to sell to the customer. So mm-hmm. people will buy the, the corn leather and not really ask other questions because it's so easy to believe that it must be good if, if it's vegan and like made out of this, you know, corn alternative they won't really necessarily dig deeper mm-hmm. um and that was hard because that's kind of been the thing that we have been approaching last um but then on top of that now what i'm super excited about is that we're at a point where we're thinking about end of life and our products <gasps> and how to recycle it. them and how to give them just just any sort of extra life outside of the customer so yeah, one thing that we, we've been doing f- for a really long time is DIY repair kits. Um, so the the stud at the bottom of our shoe that the strap can use to change in and out does come off sometimes, and it only comes off if you wear it a lot. So if you have worn the same shoe every day for like a year, the little piece of glue that had that metal on the bottom of the shoe might come off. Um, And it just seemed silly to let people throw them away or return them. So we ended up making these little miniature DIY repair kits that come with a new stud piece, some toothpicks and glue, and then you can do it yourself. And in 100% of the instances, we have not had an issue or someone email us saying that it happened again. So it was just a one-time fix and they got to wear their shoes for you know, however much longer they wanted to wear them. That's amazing. That's so smart. Thank you. Yeah, that was definitely, it came from a genuine place too of, of wanting to make these products last and be really complementary to somebody's lifestyle. So, and then on top of that, so something else we're doing is um, we're, we're offering to cover shipments to the cobblers, which is this oh. really cool service online. And they restore and repair all different kinds of leather goods, like bags, sneakers, um, leather shoes for women and men. So pretty much anything leather you can send to them and they will repair. Um So we're doing that for people as well. If they say like a tiny piece of leather is starting to come off of the heel or something and they don't have a cobbler nearby and they don't want to drive, you know, an hour in the middle of Montana, then we will send them um, a shipping label and they can send it to get repaired. And then that just extends the life of the shoe for them as well. And then lastly, in our end of life exploration right now, where we are offering people to send their shoes to Souls for Souls, um, which is this really cool nonprofit that um, takes lightly worn shoes and distributes them to other people that need them. So it could be anyone who is homeless. It could be, you know, homeless women that are trying to get jobs, um, things like that. And then we actually just are now working on a new packaging for shipping all of our shoes. It's going to be made out of 100% recycled paper, and it will have um, different QR codes on it. So initially, we had to send directions on how to use our shoes on a separate piece of paper. And now we're, we're essentially putting any sort of thing that would need additional paper on this shipping box. And it's going to be using algae ink, which is also pretty cool. Whoa, that's amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm excited about it. And then that same box, there's going to be a little thing that's like, you know, if you're buying our shoes, but you have some lightly worn shoes that you would like to send, please use this box to send it to Souls for Souls. So it's just really just trying to get this idea that like even afterwards our shoes can be sent or you could use our box and packaging to send it to somebody to send another pair of shoes to donate so yeah that's what we're working on now and then in the obviously it's like a (laughs) never-ending there's so many more things we can keep working on we're still trying to look for really cool vegan leathers oh and so one thing that i'm really excited about is for our spring summer 22 this is our first exploration into dead stock so we made appointments at fab scrap which is this really awesome nonprofit organization in new york that is collecting fabric waste from the garment district mm-hmm. went there shopped for a bunch of cool materials looked at queen of raw and then ended up making these small collections um, with our factory for spring summer 22 so a lot of the new shoes coming out are limited edition dead stock. And that's kind of been our way of addressing like vegan options at the moment. That's so cool. I love it. Thank you. It's a lot. It's a lot, but it's, uh, it's very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. You know, it's progress, not perfection. And I mean, like you're, you're making the progress. Like, you you are going to be inspiring so many other small brands and entrepreneurs and hopefully larger brands too. I that hope so. Doable, you know, because you do, it's like, I like how you're taking this really holistic approach and looking at all of the ways in which you can make it more sustainable, less wasteful, more ethical. Like it's not just the packaging. It's not just the materials. It's not just the factory. It's like chipping away at all of it because it's it's like – a massive it's a massive thing to chip away at right (laughs) totally (laughs) totally yeah and we're we're actually now transitioning into chrome free leather which wasn't an option to us when we first started because we couldn't meet the minimum order Mm -hmm. Um, and now that we've grown we can finally do chrome free so that's a tiny tiny step in the right direction that is so (laughs) cool I love it that's 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 a really big deal and it's like you're a small business you know so you already like you have to deal with all of these other challenges and you're still committed to making it happen and I just I just feel like that's so inspiring you know it makes me feel excited about the future of our world if more people can approach things the way you are at Altair, I mean, how amazing is that? That's the dream. That's what I fantasize about. Yeah, (laughs) me too. Me too. So let's talk about being a small business. I mean, we already know, like when we're talking about shoes, you're coming up against MOQs and sexism and all of these other things. But what are other challenges that you feel that you're facing just as a small business in 2021 in general? Um, there's, there's a few things that come to mind. So as a small business, you know, obviously the MOQs and things, but it's also getting information. So trying to be sustainable and trying to communicate and, you know, everything has a price, right? Auditing factories has a price and getting certification 
all of those things cost money. So that's been a big challenge for us is just looking at our budget and assessing, you know, how much we can put towards these new developments versus how much we need to just stay afloat. And especially at a time like now when everything is still uncertain, it's it's also hard to know how much we should be keeping just in case, right? Like mm-hmm. 2020, we were really, really lucky that we had enough cushion to not be completely shut down um, because our shoes are primarily meant for people who wear them to go to work or wear them out. And then as soon as work from home culture took off, our sales plummeted. Mm-hmm. So that's still a fresh fear of ours is like, how much money do we need to have as a cushion? And at what cost is that coming from? Is it coming from our salary? Like, are we going to order less shoes? What are we going to do? I mean, that's scary. It is scary. And I think that's something that every small business can really relate to right now is just having to make those decisions of like, you know, what can we afford to do right now for the future versus present? And how can we safe, give ourselves a safety net, really? The other thing is just that, especially with footwear, we are essentially dependent on the factory and they know this. So for us to find another factory that's really willing to work with us because we order such small amounts, um, they basically can make any price they want because they know that we can't go anywhere else. Right. So that's been an interesting struggle of back and forth. Like, why is this strap that was priced lower three years ago suddenly several dollars more? And it's not even like we wouldn't be willing to pay it. It's more about the transparency because we're not a huge company that can say, hey, give us a material breakdown every single time. There's a lot of pushback Mm -hmm. on that sense. And for us, we would we would feel totally fine if they were like, hey, you know, cost of living in Brazil has gone up. So we need to charge this much more. Great. Done. We don't Mm -hmm. have to ask any more questions. But it's really just getting that transparency, understanding why things are going up and not knowing if it's because they know we're dependent on them. Um, And then meeting deadlines. That's another thing. This is all circling around production. It's like, because we're small, it's so easy to push our orders back. If a big company comes in and has like a hundred thousand dollar order, then ours may not get done on time. And that affects all the tiny boutiques that are taking a chance on us or our pre-order sales. You know, it has a rip, a really long-term rippling effect for us. Um, and then I would say on the more forward, like front, front facing side, it's really just juggling all of the different hats because there's only two of us. So (laughs) yeah, you know, it's really hard. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) And I, I know a lot of people who mean well, including my friends will say, Hey, why don't you, you know, talk more about this on Instagram? And I'm like, because it would literally be me photoshopping all of this content, <laughs> coming up with copy, scheduling it. Like, I don't have that time. <laughs> right, right. No, I think the struggle is real because I think if you present a really polished professional look on Instagram that everybody assumes you've got this huge staff working behind you. And it's like, but if you didn't have the good polished 
thought through look on Instagram, then people wouldn't want to buy shoes from you, right? They'd be like, this seems sketch. So it's like like really hard, right? I mean, I have this conversation with people all the time. I mean, obviously this is a podcast, but people think that there is because, you know, our Instagram game is so strong. I don't know why I say our, I'm that person who always says (laughs) us, we, our, when I mean I, me. And so uh, I need to break that habit apparently, but I'm like, no, it's literally just me. Like I can't do more Instagram posts than I already am. Thank you. (laughs) I'm at this place now where I've been trying to be more supportive of my other female entrepreneur friends, which, which includes you of just trying to like applaud people more. Mm, Um, I love that. Because there's not enough, you know, being an entrepreneur can be so isolating and your tiny victories are so much better when other people understand, relate and applaud for you. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. And I feel like we've all been extra isolated because of the pandemic and all of us are working so hard all the time. And I mean, there's been so many conversations over the past year of like, we should, we should do this. We should do that. Like we should all check in with one another regularly. And we haven't because we're all just hustling mm-hmm. so hard. But right before I started recording with you, I was talking to Danny of Picnic Wear. Yes, I and, love Danny. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like so many of the things that you and I are talking about right now are exactly what Danny and I were talking about too. And I was like, oh my gosh, we all need to like think of all the ways we can support one another and just, uh, you know, show our appreciation for everyone's work because, you know, everyone's getting lost in the algorithm or it's just working so hard and being fearful about the future, you know, like it's, it's just like, how can we support one another more? And I think just as a larger question for everybody who's listening to this, like, I think when we think about small businesses and entrepreneurs, we think the only way we can support them is with our money. And of course that's important for keeping these businesses going, but like there's so much stuff you can do that doesn't cost anything and will seriously make someone feel so good. Like sharing content or plotting hard work, you know, recommending them to other friends, writing reviews, all of these things. Like they, I, I promise you those things get noticed and make someone feel really good for sure. It's true. I mean, we recently got a review and a personal email from one customer about how much she loved our shoes and how happy she was. And it just made my day to hear that somebody (laughs) was like compelled enough to write a good review about it and send us a private email. It's like, wow, (laughs) that takes a lot of initiative. But like I probably made your whole day or your whole week you know, like a whole week for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Like those things are really appreciated, but you don't want to go on Instagram and be like, Hey everybody, like if you felt like sending me a personal email about how much you love (laughs) my shoes, that would be really great about now. Like I had this friend who would periodically, this is like more in the Facebook era, get really drunk and on Facebook be like, will one of you admit that you have a crush on me right now? And then, like, deleted in the morning. But this is happening, like, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and it's just, like, her signature too much to drink move. But so no one's going to do that. But, like, trust me, people want to hear it and care about it. <laughs> Feel free to let Harmony know if you have a crush on her. 
<laughs> yes, I'm available. I manage all the Instagrams. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, so please just get in the DMs and be nice. <laughs> well, do you have any final last words, thoughts, anything you want to say, you know, like to get people excited or get them really depressed, whatever. Let's just let's, let's go for it <laughs> excited, right? <laughs> um, well, okay. So in terms of just one random thing I wanted to mention that I didn't mention earlier, uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that going from Brazil to the United States for a vegan material without any leather on it is at least 30% import tax. So that is a huge impact on our final cost. Whereas if it has leather or has any type of leather on it, it's a 10% import tax. So that's a fun fact. Um, (laughs) But aside, (laughs) aside from that, I'm really excited that we are finally at a point where we can focus on end of life on our product and put more time and energy into that because it's always been our dream to be circular, if not regenerative at some point um, as a shoe business. And I think it's just, it's just exciting that we're able to move forward and we survived the past year we didn't we didn't know if we were going to and we did so just just knowing that and knowing that we can still focus on sustainability and make extra steps is really exciting I mean I I'm I'm so proud of you and I think EPR is one of those things that I want more and more companies to think about because it's just as important as the early part of like the production process you know it's it's something that like most companies don't think about and don't need to, you know, their job is done and they don't care what happens after they get your money. And that's got to change. That's that kind of thinking will change the entire industry. So I'm, I'm just so proud of, of Altair for doing that already. Thank you so much. (laughs) Man, I was asking for nice words and it happened and manifested it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Harmony. This was so great. And I feel like people are already like, wait, what? Shoes have this many parts? (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for bringing your expertise to the community. Yeah, thank you for having me and just continuing to deliver some mind-blowing informative podcasts and episodes i do what i can i do what i can sometimes i'm like well we run out of things to talk about but i just don't know if we will like we've barely scratched the surface on shoes today you know i know there's so much further that there's we could so go much. But- we could do a whole year of just conversation about shoes i promise we didn't even get to sunglasses <laughs> and jewelry yet you know oh geez totally whole other ball game whole other ball game <laughs> Wow. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Harmony. It was so fun. You can find Altair on Instagram at AltairNY. The NY is standing for New York. And I'll link to that in the show notes. Don't worry. Harmony is just yet another amazing person I would have never met without Clothes Horse. And I'm, I'm so grateful for the friendships I've been able to make just by working on Clothes Horse. Um, And I hope you enjoyed meeting Harmony as much as I enjoy talking to her on the internet. Harmony did send me a list of things to tell you about Altair that we didn't mention in our conversation. First off, 
Altair just launched their first ever chrome-free ballet shoe in black with a strap to convert it into a Mary Jane. And chrome-free leather is a big deal. Why? You want to learn a little lesson about leather? Well, 90% of leather around the world is tanned using a solution that contains chrome. This mixture of water, chromium salts, and tanning liquor is sprayed on the shoe. It changes the protein structure of the leather, preserving it and helping it to retain its color. Basically, without the tanning process, leather would decompose because, you know, it's, it's skin. Chrome tanning was invented in 1858, and prior to that, leather was treated using vegetable tanning, which was slower and expensive. Chrome tanning was a lot faster and, of course, a lot cheaper, so it basically replaced vegetable tanning pretty fast. The problem with chrome tanning is that if the process isn't managed correctly, and real talk, often it is not, lead, arsenic, acids, and chrome can get into the water supply. Unsurprisingly, that's a bad situation. It's terrible for the soil, and it's really terrible for the people living around that water supply. They can experience all kinds of terrible health issues, ranging from irritation of the mouth, airways, and eyes, to skin issues, to digestive problems, to kidney and liver damage, to cancer, and even reproductive issues and the workers tanning this leather experience a lot of these problems as well. So yeah, a chrome-free leather option is a giant leap forward. Altair is also working on a lot of other cool stuff right now, in addition to this chrome-free leather. They are launching their first Deadstock fabric collection next year for spring 22, and they're designing heels to be made with recycled plastic. What else? Their shoes are made ethically in Brazil, and they're certified by Positive Luxury for their commitment to sustainability. They also donate 5% to Restore NYC, a nonprofit providing long-term rehabilitation for survivors of sex trafficking. That's amazing. When you hear about how small Altair is, you can't help but ask yourself, if they can accomplish all of this, why can't Nike? Why can't... Aldo, are they still around? I don't know why that was the first shoe brand that came to mind, but why can't all these much larger shoe companies do the same, knowing all the obstacles that Harmony and her partner experience getting this shit done? I'm constantly inspired by how hard so many members of our community are working to make the world a better place, to raise the bar, to change the nature of what it means to do business in this world and to challenge the idea that things can only be done one way because that's the way they've always been done. That, my friends, is sometimes the biggest challenge of all here. It's so weird, but like all of these industries are so stuck in their ways. Change is the most terrifying thing for them. I hope hearing from Harmony and Kristen in this episode has gotten you excited to challenge the status quo and prove that we can all do things better. Like we always say around here, one person can't change the world alone, but when we all work together, we can make some major changes. And when I meet people like Harmony, like Kristen, like all the activists and makers and thinkers and certified rad people in our community, well, I know 
that we can turn around this big smelly cruise ship of waste, exploitation, and general despair that is fashion, retail, and just consumerism in the 21st century. We're going to do this. I just know it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse, written, researched, hosted, and edited by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. With a little help from Brenda, with some help from Dustin, with some help from all of you. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, or maybe consider subscribing. And of course, tell your friends. If you want to support my work here at Clothes Horse, go check out patreon.com slash podcast, where you'll get access to exclusive episodes and some pretty sick swag. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye.